Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Katarina Grafman here with me from Stockholm. Welcome to my podcast, Katarina. Thank you very much. A short intro, Katarina Grafman holds a PhD in cultural anthropology and is a pioneer of consumer anthropology in a commercial context. And Katarina, I know that you've worked with um, clients like IKEA, Volvo, uh, Björnborg, Swedish Radio, BBC and many others. Um, and uh, you are there to, to really help them to understand consumer behavior, preferences and so on. Uh, what is the real driver for their eagerness to understand more about this? I think that they have understood that they need to put people in the center. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean to look at people as people, not as consumers or just as a target group. Uh, so to really understand the behavior behind the words. Because as an anthropologist I always say that people say one thing but they do something else. Uh, so just looking at attitudes or you know the more ordinary kind of methods, it doesn't give you the true uh, truth about how people actually live their lives. So as an anthropologist, I look at behavior, uh, what's really going on in homes or in stores or even in the cars, uh, you know, everywhere is uh, our lab. Mm -hmm. uh, as being an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. and, and what are the typical, if, if there are any, you know, prejudice about consumer behavior or, or maybe misconceptions out there? I would say right now, uh, I would say it's the uh, intention to be uh, sustainable. Because you see uh, different kind of uh, values that uh, where attitudes around sustainability is actually growing. Mm. And people are becoming more and more aware. But then when it comes to real life and everything that's happening in real life, so many things happen. And then they are not acting sustainable. Because uh, just a, a very, very easy example is that If you want to buy something that is sustainable, food for example, you don't want it to look worse than mm -hmm. something that is conventional. So why would you pay more for brown ban bananas, for example, uh, compared to if you could buy you know, mm. fresh bananas? Mm. Uh, so what we have seen when we are studying food uh, consumption, for example, is that it's money talks, of course. Mm -hmm. you should have a very, very strong intention to actually put more money on things that doesn't smell or look or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, seem to be better than conventional food. Mm -hmm. So, and that's important because many companies just are just listening to attitudes and then they think that, you know, uh, our consumer is going to change and uh, maybe not because other kind of strategies are needed, so... Hmm. And and what about, for example, a company like um, like IKEA or Swedish Radio, for that matter? Um, how have they um, used the the insights uh, that you've um, uh, worked on together with them? Uh, 
to influence their reality in, in a good way? And what has been driving them? I mean, is it like, let's understand people better so that we can like manipulate them into certain behavior or certain traction? Or is it a more of a genuine um, interest behind? Both, actually, because I would say that uh, advertisement and uh, marketing is about manipulation. And if you really want to do marketing that's really, you know, touches people, uh, maybe you really need to know what drives people and what kind of meanings they put in different products or behavior or mm. things like that. But I also would think that it's a genuine interest because they also know that if we don't really understand people's needs and behavior, we can't actually do something that they would like to buy in the future. So I would say both. So what you do in a way consists of this, you could say, digging for something with unknown shape and unknown color and unknown size and so on. So what... How do you do? How do you go about it? What kind of, as you said, methods and approaches do you do you choose, and how do they complement each other? What is the kind of a toolbox? Well, as as an anthropologist, you do ethnography. That's uh, specific, mm. specific for anthropology is the method, and uh, that's about doing one to two years field work mm. in a different context. Of course, you can't do that when you do when you work for a company, for example. Well, if 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 they have the time, you know, and, mm. and the finance to do that, that would be wonderful. Um, but the idea is actually that you have quite an open-ended approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a very broad approach. Because if you compare to all other methods, uh, most companies have already decided what is the issue, what is the problem. Uh, they work very limited in their way of thinking and they think that this is our problem. Uh, so they have already decided and then they go out and test if they are correct in that so you know, defining. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So compared to that, anthropology and ethnography is very open. So you actually go out and study a, a group of people that can be uh, in the target group or you study a behavior or how people use a product. And it's very open-ended, which means that you actually find the white spaces. The thing that actually are, you know, the problem, in quotations, mm. um, that maybe the company doesn't think of at all, because they are very focused on, you know, what they already have defined. So in that sense, you can find it's more totally holistic approach, and you want to understand the whole context, because everything goes together with uh, you know, uh, different aspects uh, in our lives. And uh, if, if you look at, for example, anthropology is the study of culture. And if you study culture, uh, it's about understanding how things in life connect to each other. So that's why you can't pick a behavior or a product from its context. You have to study the, the whole context. Mm. Uh, so that's the difference. And then you can use... When you have the knowledge, this kind of deep understanding, then you can make quantitative studies because maybe you want to know how much or uh, elaborate around how many people do this or etc. So then you can combine. But most companies and organizations unfortunately start with the quantitative studies um, and then maybe you are in the wrong direction from start. Companies and organizations' assumptions of, on, of what is wrong can uh, lead them totally wrong mm. in a long-term perspective because 
they have not done their lessons properly. It's really important to understand different methods and when to use what kind of method. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and the Gen Z as as we as we call them like from born from 2000 and onwards I would I would uh, define yes. um increasingly so people are getting interested in more into into them because they're like the next generation already now consumers and so on. What do we know about them? What do you know about them from everything you've studied and learned and so on that you could uh, that you could um, share with the the listeners? Uh, I've been studying young people and then I've been studying uh, I've been focusing on media behavior mm. in in the um, I would say digital generations. So for me that is also millennials uh, born in the 90s. Uh, mm. I've been focused and I I call them gen G, <laughs> uh, actually Generation Google, uh, and that's a mix between millennials and Gen Z. So it's 90 until 2010, I would mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. because that's the first uh, digital generation, and I have been focusing on them to see how media actually change our way of being human. Mm. that's my focus not how many hours they're sitting in front of the screen you know yeah. the very focus especially now uh, in in different you know parts here in Sweden we focus on you know screen time uh, I'm more interested on in how we are changing as humans and I would say that it is interesting especially if you look at the internet and how we talked about the communication society uh, information superhighway knowledge society and what do we have today? Yes, we have relation society because internet has actually made us more social and we as humans are social. So we use, especially this group, use uh, media to uh, strengthen their social relations. And one thing that is really interesting if you look at, especially Jen said, is that uh, they are in groups all the time. Uh, they are discussing everything in different groups and and you can see that they are moving from being official like on Facebook or Instagram to be more in these closed uh, communities like Snapchat and they are discussing everything in different groups before they make a decision and I think that's interesting because that will actually be something that most Companies, uh, politicians, organizations have to think of in the future because we think of this rational person who, you know, by themselves uh, collect information and make a decision. And that's not what we see today because they are not doing that. They have to mirror every decision in different peer groups before they can make a decision. And for me, that's really interesting because if you look at democratic, you know, uh, when we vote uh, in in modern nations uh, and you have this idea that we do this as rational individuals. So what is if that is not how it's going to be in the future, uh, it's really interesting to think you know, mm-hmm. what will this mean for democracy and, and, and uh, bigger questions like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing. And you, okay, oh, you can talk about Jensen for a long time because uh, they are not a homogeneous generation. No. They are very heterogeneous because you have never had a generation who had all these possibilities to be, you know, in different um, uh, 
groups of interests and find different friends and uh, you know every uh, channel is open for them so in that sense it's a very heterogeneous generation so it's difficult to talk about them as one group I would say mm-hmm. what is uh, I mean maybe this is going to oversimplify it but what is like the main pros and cons with this generation looking at it from a humanity point of view that's difficult the digital are part of them you know they don't separate being digital and being uh, in real life we as a society are are becoming more and more digital and that's a good thing uh, if they are digital in their identity in that sense and but i would say maybe the negative is that they are very diverse uh, and especially going back to talking about sustainability and that will be the really hot question for them is that you have we uh, now we are in Sweden but I think that everybody knows about Greta Thunberg Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we talk about Generation Greta and I meet so many companies and organizations that say that well you know maybe it's too late for us to change the way we live but for the younger ones they are Generation Greta And that's problematic because they are not. It's quite a small group that are uh, driven by real sustainable values. I would say that most of them are actually hyper-consumers. And uh, many companies I've been working with that are really in sustainable business say that the group that is worst when it comes to sustainable living is actually the young ones. So, and that's going back to what I said, you know, values and doing can be totally totally separated. So in that sense, I think the future has a big challenge actually uh, mm. to work with the young ones. So, mm. so the big cha- difference between the the being and the doing. So, but if we talk about the being, what do they want to be? What do they believe in? Do you think uh, in terms of um, what's important to them? Um, we talk about you know meaning at work. Uh, we talk mm. about um, the, the young people um, at work now, assuming that of course their company is going to do everything they can in order to be a sustainable, uh, friendly, so to say, um, uh, company um, that is naturally involved in in the system of society and so on, and take on not only responsibilities but organize themselves in a win-win manner but what about the younger ones then that that we talk about gen z is that truly important to them or is it just something that they say they think it's important to them Mm. Uh, again i would say it's difficult to Mm. talk about them as one Mm. Uh, i think that one thing that is interesting is that so many companies have difficulties actually to uh, to make them interested at all you know they're quite difficult to to they have big dreams about you know what the work should be Uh, so when they come many companies tell me that when they come they are not eager to start work and work heavily you know maybe the first thing they say when they come is that you know uh, I need to be I need to have this and this day off because I'm going to a festival I'm doing this and It's more about, you know, their individual lives than maybe having some kind of responsibility feeling for the company. Uh, and also we talk about them as value-driven. Mm-hmm. And uh, But at the same time, you see, you have, you know, 
high schools in Sweden uh, if you want to be an influencer. So on the other side, uh, they think that maybe I can be successful to be uh, to just have a TV channel at YouTube. Uh, and so it's a really, really mix between dreams, values, and they have an idea that everyone can succeed. So maybe I don't need to work that hard. And this is not only coming from me and, you know, older people in, in companies. I hear that also from uh, themselves. Mm. When you talk to young people, for example, in restaurant businesses in, in uh, Scandinavia, uh, people that are between 20 and 30 actually complaining over their own uh, peers because they are lazy, uh, bad at taking responsibility, uh, they don't even phone in when they are not coming, uh, and things like that. So I think it's a really mixed generation in that sense. Uh, and so it's very important, I think, for companies to understand what will drive them, uh, what will uh, make them feel empowered and, and find those values, um, because they are quite, especially in our part of the world, it's really different uh, depending on where you are, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say that in, in uh, Scandinavia, northern part of Europe, they have had quite a good life uh, with no, not much responsibility. And of course, that will be uh, something that we see today when they are grown up and start to, to work and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But going back to you, um, Katarina, what would you say is your, your passion, that thing that is so important and interesting for you that you are even willing to suffer for it if it's needed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that it's not like I have a job because being an anthropologist, I'm always an anthropologist. Yeah, it's uh, part of you. Yeah, it's me. Uh, yeah. So I do what I really find interesting. Mm. And in that sense, it's, uh, you know, coming close to people and to um, give voice to uh, all the people, you know. Uh, Because for me, it's so interesting because we talk so much about, like we have been doing now, about, you know, one generation or a target group or whatever. And companies work with segmentation models and things like that and personas. Uh, So for me, it is so fulfilling to actually work with uh, different kind of projects where I can uh, give the voice to you know the different mm-hmm. uh, all different people uh, so in that sense that's my passion I would say mm. hmm. and do you have um a way of, of um, like connecting of how, how are things, for example, uh, in a certain generation, of, for example, in the US or somewhere else, so that you can ca- compare the different um, trends and behaviors and in order to put it in, as you say, the right context and, and understand it even on a deeper level. On a more yeah, I will say that uh, anthropology as a subject is about mm. comparing cultures. Um, mm if you compare it to all the, all other kind of, uh, I would say, um, humanistic uh, or social science, sciences, mm. they don't have this kind of uh, comparison in, in, you know, as their gene. Mm. <laughs> so uh, in that sense, it's important to... Um, anthropology has been like putting up a mirror to our own culture. Mm. 
by going away to see another culture and then you come back. So for me, it's the opposite. Uh, what I do actually is that I work with uh, international companies and they want to understand Swedish culture uh, or Scandinavian culture uh, to compare. So then I get to uh, have materials from them so I can compare what they have seen to what we see in Scandinavia, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, I think that's so important because the cultural context is as an anthropologist you are interested in you know what's uh, common between humans but what is different in the cultural sense mm-hmm. and so that's uh, something i do all the time i try to see what is different in different cultures and what is actually okay this must be more a human drive uh, or human uh, basic needs or whatever so so that's a really important aspect mm-hmm. And are there any you could say transformational points in your life that have that you looking back now you see have influenced you a lot? This sounds so boring when I say this, but it was actually when I started to read anthropology. Yeah. So uh, that was actually my first because I I was not supposed to to do that. Uh-huh. I was supposed to be an economic. Mm-hmm. And then I started with statistics because you need statistics in your you know education in economics. So I thought that maybe I start with what I thought was the most boring part, mm. and then it was really boring. So I needed to take a break, <laughs> and then actually I found this was in the beginning of the nineties, and then I found a course uh, anthropology. I didn't know what that was. You know, it was really like oh that sounds interesting. For me, it was a revival. <laughs> Mm. And it was actually the course about kinship systems around the world. That was really, for me, it was an eye-opener that was amazing for me because it was a totally different way of understanding the world. Uh, So after that, I I have only uh, studied anthropology. And more personally, I would say that when I was really sick, uh, and then I really thought, okay, what is life all about? So... Uh, because I, I, I sensed death, like uh, if you say like that, and that was really important for me as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also it affects you know how I work. I don't say yes to things I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And as you know, uh, when you have your own company, uh, maybe you sometimes think that maybe I need to because you never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was important to say no. And also something that's really important is that I tell clients when they do wrong or think wrong. Uh, so I'm not afraid to say that, okay, but you know how you are formulating this question or project it's really wrong you need to do like this and I could say that maybe I lose a few clients on being honest but I gain Mm. more actually trust Mm. when being uh, quite um, transparent with them yeah Yeah, you, you feel like there is no time for bullshit kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. Um, and in terms of businesses and, and companies and organizations that you work with, um, do you find that there is like some kind of a long-term formula or solution uh, that you believe in? Uh, you know, is there like a common denominator? I would say that um, you can make a um, difference between default thinking and sense-making. And uh, so 
if you are working in a company and you have a long-term vision to work with the company, then you need to do sense making. What I have experienced uh, as being, you know, working with different companies uh, for now some 20 years, I feel that uh, less and less companies are interested in the long-term uh, strategies. Um, it's more about, you know, um, taking care of fires that is coming up. Mm. Uh, on a, a more sh- short-term basis, and and I know that m- many friends of, of mine that are actually also working um, with more long-term strategies say the same. So it's not only me having this kind of feeling. And I think if we want to make a real change, uh, especially now after the pandemic, when we t- talk about. Uh, are we going to do anything about sustainability then you need to make a real change in the company Uh, you can't do this uh, green washing anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, so then you really need to have this long term and then it's important to do this sense making and I would say that sense making is to have a systemic thinking and a holistic view on people, life, business etc so it's connected back to you really need to get to know humans. Uh, you really get to know how things are connected. Uh, you really need to put more effort in um, to have this more holistic view of what's going on. Because, if you, for example, if you look at uh, food uh, and you have a whole system from production to distribution to consumption... And the problem is that if you work with this, you very often only work with one part and you don't have the systemic view on the whole change. And, and then it's really difficult to, to make a difference because you need to do it, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, uh, I think that companies really need to, to uh, move from this short-term perspective to long-term again. Um, and that is important. Mm. And, and probably the, the combination of being, as you say, uh, very long-term and aware of, of the whole, um, because at the end of the day we're all drops of the same water, so whatever you do in one end is going to affect the other. But, um, but at the same time there is a big need to be extremely... I actually don't like the word agile, but you know what I mean. So yeah. you need to, you can't have yes. long, long kind of yes. plans or anything. You need to be fast in 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 terms of remaining relevant. Not, yes. Um, but in a in a in a remain relevant also and and uh, stay relevant also respecting the core of why you exist as a company at the same time so that it's not like the wind is blowing from the right and you're just adapting you have to stand for something yes and um, and um, respect that but if we dream a little bit and say that you can um, you can assume that all doors are open to you and you have all kinds of resources available to you is there anything in particular you would rush to innovate or or, or change Hmm. You know, be it in your world or elsewhere. I think that we need some kind of cultural evolution. Uh, I think that if you can change culture, and uh, for example, I'm really into um, understanding consumer culture because the world we live in today, uh, I define as consumer culture. And that's not only, you know, that people are going out buying stuff. It's, uh, it's defining 
society today. It's the consumer logic uh, in that sense. And I think that by changing culture, uh, then you can also uh, change how people behave because uh, we want to change norms. And norms is really... um, uh, It's... How do you say it's a cultural thing? You know how we are taught to uh, to be grown up and how we are taught to be humans in different cultures. So in that sense, because we talk so much, why do people not change? We we, we have the information. Why are people not changing? Because uh, the majority of people are only going to change if culture is changing. Uh, because it's difficult to, difficult to be that person who are actually changing, but you know nobody else is, is changing. Why do I never go abroad anymore? Because I take my responsibility, but all my neighbors are going to Spain four times a year. So then it's really difficult to actually change. And then you need to look at culture uh, on, in a more, on a more pragmatic level, I would say, um, uh, in that sense. That's the way we can change uh, people's behavior. Um, maybe that's very blurry. A blurry answer. <laughs> uh, no, no, but it's, uh, at the end of the day, it's raising awareness about something and how it's all connected, so that we all feel it's equally uh, equally important. Yeah. Uh, but it's always this thing, this muscle about you know how do we you make individual changes, and at the same time that they happen collectively, because if one is not happening, then the other one won't happen. Either. Yes. And I think that leadership is one way, probably, to, to to get there, because if we have very good leaders, they can activate the visionary hopeful kind of meaningful uh, nerve in us and and activate that then we can see the why Mm. clearly Mm. and like work for it together um, as a group Um, so I totally agree that this um, we become more of a consumers than uh, than creators that we are actually Mm. Mm. as people yes Uh, so I hope that this whole development in itself will uh, also considering AI and everything else would give us the opportunity to be more using our creativity and imagination and that power and then leave the rest of the types of work that can be done you know to to other uh, other support systems if you could give one piece of advice to to leaders uh, today what would that be given what you work with Mm, a very specific advice uh, could be that uh, to uh, in every corporate board Uh, around the world to put one maybe two uh, persons with a humanistic um, background Mm -hmm. uh, in the board group I think that would be actually quite strong to have because if you look at humanists and social scientists uh, they are uh, specialists at being generalists And I think that is needed in a world with a lot of economics and Mm. engineers. You need to have that eye Mm. on what's going on. Because sometimes it's enough to have someone with this kind of background to just look at um, the business strategies or organization or whatever to have another view uh, on things. Mm. Uh, so I think that we need more people with this kind of background mm. uh, in the top level mm. uh, of. And my my favorites, my 
Idol, the anthropologist um, Grant McCracken, he has uh, written a book called uh, The CCO, uh, The Chief Culture Officer. And he's talking about companies who actually have a chief culture officer and mm. what that means for companies when they have this kind of cultural uh, view on top level. Uh, so, and, and I think that's really interesting. Mm. And uh, so what is his message that the culture should be like the boss of the company, so to say? As well, to maybe. <laughs> At least very, very close to the uh, yeah. CEO. Uh, be part of, because if you look at companies today, for, for a couple of years ago, the uh, IT person, the expert, was not in the board. And today, in most companies, that's uh, quite common that the uh, you have an IT um, yeah. person in the board. Uh, and I would say that... Uh, Please, uh, I hope that that will be the same with our kind of competences. Mm. That's, you know, uh, the view we have will be as important uh, in this sense-making approach that I'm talking about. Who should be the ideal buyer of of, of these, let's say, uh, anthropology, you know, uh, studies and, and insights? If uh, are you talking in the company? Yes, I would say that for me, I have experience working with different, uh, especially um, marketing communication. Uh, I've been working with the business development, and I've been working on a higher level directly with the CEO. Mm. I would say that most benefit is actually working on the top level with the CEO. Mm. Uh, uh, working with marketing communication, then it's much more about short-term perspective. And it's much much more about you know just measuring what kind of effects uh, things have uh, in the immediate situation. If you work on a higher level when you work with the CEO, uh, then you are more like the devil on the shoulder, uh, mm. and you can talk about things going on that you see and they don't see. So in that sense, it's much more uh, effective to work on the top level uh, mm. in a company. Mm. Gets more kind of integrated. What do you think is the most important thing for for companies to focus on right now? I think that if you want to be, uh, you know, uh, creative, uh, innovating company, you need to, like I said in the beginning, to put people in center. And I say that because many companies talk about that today, that we are people centric. And it's very easy to say it's much more difficult to actually do that in the whole process. And I have noticed that it's very nice to say that uh, let's bring in an anthropologist or a philosopher or whatever in the startup of something mm. because it gives you an air of being, you know, this kind of holistic and it gives you some credit. Uh, and then everything is just... Uh, scaled away you know you take this away because then it's all about the money and you need to make the project financially successful so then you take all those compromises (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, so by when people companies say that they have people in center then you need to do it the whole process Uh, you need to be from as I talked about food you need to do it from production distribution to consumer Uh, and that's something totally different and you can't only bring in a consultant uh, to be with you for a couple of hours to talk about issues that is important you really need to have this uh, viewpoint in the whole process Mm -hmm. 
so I think that's that's really important uh, and I would say that like we talked about greenwashing in uh, communication I think that when companies say that you know we have the people in center for me that's uh, people washing what do you think the world needs most at this very time we don't need all this dystopic news all the time because what it does with people who are engaged and who are actually into change is that when you only hear this uh, it's like we become paralyzed Mm. and uh, it feels like it really doesn't matter and if I feel that I think of all the people who are maybe not as you know involved in this kind of transformation and what are they feeling when they hear this and I I can see on young people that a big part of them say, oh, it doesn't matter what I do today because the world is going uh, to die. So it doesn't matter. And Mm. that is really problematic if we have uh, a young generation and uh, part of this generation that actually have this kind of thoughts. Mm. Some kind of apathy. Yeah, Yeah, that's not good because then it's it's really difficult to make this cultural change that I'm Mm. talking about. So... uh, I don't know how to do this because you need to tell, you know, you need to inform what's going on. But at the same time, it's doing things with us as humans that is uh, maybe have the total opposite effect. So, um, and I'm a little, you know, I think that's uh, problematic. Mm. And that's why also, again, we have, um, I think, this huge, huge need um, for great leaders, and I'm not talking about just you know CEOs and stuff, but level politicians and so on, but just leaders in the daily life. We have different people that we, in one way or the other, like to follow yes. for a good reason. Yes. So the more of those, and that's why I think also it's important for all of us to think about um, who is influenced by me and who can I lead in a positive, good way. And and the beauty is that we don't always know how much we influence people directly or indirectly through something we did, said, or something that they yes. observed that we yeah. did. Uh, and there is always you know, hope and inspiration in that. We hope that more people are actually, especially in the young generation, will you know, uh, take this kind of rule uh, yeah. to be this persons that other can follow. So. Mm. So true. Um, thank you so, so, so much. To find out more, um, um, there will be links and show notes on uh, corporateunplugged.com. And um, remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Katarina. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao.